Kay Meadow is an assistant professor of sociology at Columbia University. She teaches courses on gender and sexuality, queer theory, qualitative methodology, law, as well as on the analytics of risk and uncertainty. While her research covers a lot of topics, the work she's created that has had the biggest impact on me and on, I think, many people's thinking is her writing on the emergence of the transgender child as a social category and the creation and maintaining of gender classifications in law and in medicine. The book that we focus on here is the one she put out through University of California Press in 2018, Trans Kids Being Gendered in the 21st Century. I was absolutely blown away by trans kids. It's teeming with insights and is genuinely a transformative read for lots of reasons, not least because it dwells with the irreducibly complex issue of how we acquire a gendered sense of ourselves, the powerful constraints placed on that process, and how these constraints are both generative and restrictive. As Tay puts it, we are all in an iterative process of creating ourselves in relationship to the categories that are available to us, in relationship to the expectations of others, in relationship to the social scripts we follow. While some will fit neatly into the available categories, quote, for the entirety of their lives, for other people, that is a more fluid process. She emphasizes that being truly gender expansive means affirming that if a person has chosen to inhabit an assigned personhood forever, then that is their choice. But if a person is not sure if they fit a certain identity category, then this is also a perfectly acceptable choice. It starts with accepting that, quote, all of these are legitimate ways to gender oneself. We talk about the overarching concerns of Meadows' work and the curiosities that motivate it, but we also work through the claims of Emily Bazelon's controversial article in the New York Times from June of this year, The Battle Over Gender Therapy. Meadow offers some really valuable correctives and complications to Bazelon's piece. She explains that the way Bazelon gives equal footing to those that problematize gender-related care is actually very misleading because we've luckily reached a point after a history of struggle for legitimacy from groups advocating for transgender rights where it's no longer assumed professionally or politically that avoiding being trans is somehow the best outcome. There is now what Meadow describes as a massive consensus which says that quote, affirming and facilitating gender nonconformity in children leads to better psychological, social, educational, physical outcomes for those children. Bazelon's piece lacks this kind of clarity. On the one hand, it doesn't address the fact that there are, quote, constellations of adults around these children, many of whom have medical or psychological expertise, who are very anxious about bearing the responsibility for helping these kids make decisions that are going to affect their bodies in significant ways. But it also does this thing of throwing a spotlight on the so-called regretter, the transgender person who, after transitioning, decides to reverse it. First of all, Meadow stresses that this is, in her experience, extremely uncommon. And second of all, the regretter, as a category, is too easily deployed by people who, in Meadow's words, have some generational investment in maintaining very particular identity categories, the ones that we are familiar with and comfortable with and nostalgic about. In attempting to inspire anxiety about regret, it ignores the fact that ambivalence is in fact, quote, a fundamental human predicament that far exceeds transness. 
Existing frameworks, from Meadows' point of view, make it impossible to imagine gender as a set of choices that one can work through without having to know from minute one what the end goal is. There's a lot in this conversation that can act as guidance for political organizing and academic work. At one point, Tay talks about how a certain problem that people on the left tend to have is that they're self-critical and willing to avow their uncertainty. Whereas conservatives, she says, tend to be more black and white about things. Nuance and self-reflexivity are good things, but it doesn't perhaps help us win political debates. In terms of academia, she gestures to the ways that this push for citation counts and publication counts can be detrimental if the goal is to produce a careful, considered conversation. This matters if we're talking about topics that are controversial, where it's crucial, as Tay puts it, for us to be understood for having said the thing one meant to say. What also clearly matters is who is speaking and who isn't. Because of the power of gender norms and the compulsion to protect kids from harm, many parent organizations that advocate for trans identities but are not led by transgender adults often make it their goal to produce or to promote, quote, the most normative, non-normative kids. The effect, in some ways, is to create a version of transness, she says, without trauma, and one that doesn't necessarily learn from what she calls the incredible wisdom gleaned from decades of navigating cisgender culture. It's really, it's, it's fantastic to get to talk to you, but in particular in this, in this moment where, as you said in a recent interview, the media attention to trans youth has exploded. Um, and, and you say like in that interview for uh, Columbia News that um, that happened kind of serendipitously alongside you writing uh, trans kids being gendered in the 21st century. Yeah. Which is, itself was interesting, but like, the first question, you know, that I wanted to bring up was this, this interesting um, theorizing of, of sort of futurity in uh, trans kids, uh, your, your brilliant book. Um, and what, you know, cause like literature, theoretical literature on childhood has largely sort of hinged on the way that the child is symbolic of the future. Like, you know, Claudia Castaneda's um, figurations or, um, Lee Edelman's No Future, you know, but your book is, is, has a different sort of approach to that. Um, and one of the passages from the book that really kind of lit up for me when, is where you observe, observe that, quote, it is rare to have an opportunity to watch an emergent social category in transformation. Transgender children provide us with precisely this opportunity. So, you, you know, like you're acknowledging some of the stuff that the literature on childhood does about how, you know, children by definition have limited agency. Um, and and so, yeah, like when young people transgress against normative gender, it it causes us as adults to sort of reconsider gender itself. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to ask you to unpack that a little bit further and maybe, you know, in relationship to this like central idea of adults, in particular, the parents of trans kids having an epiphany day, you know, this, this moment where, um, you know, uh, uh, there's this kind of, you know, pivotal thing that happens, like one specific event that just like puts, puts parents on a different course entirely. And whether you see that epiphany day that people have on the kind of private, domestic, like local level as a bit of a microcosm of the effect that transgender children can have 
more broadly by throwing, as you put it, the social process of gendering into sharp relief. Are we at kind of an epiphanal moment? I think there's a profound difference between the way, you know, the people that you're citing are queer theorists talk about um, children as symbols of the future and the way that I think about the future as it is um, mobilized in relation to trans kids. So, so queer theorists often talk about the figure of the child and mm-hmm. all of the political stuff that we do to protect quote unquote children, right? And in that context, we're not talking about particular children, right? So arguments mm-hmm. um, against homosexuality uh, were often phrased in the form of we have to protect children, right? From, mm-hmm. from the damaging effects of visible homosexuality, right? Uh, of, of presenting that as a viable um, uh, kind of life course. And it was never clear what, what care folks had for particular children in this idea of protecting all children. Um, I think what happens, what's happening with families now is that a lot of the action on the part of parents, on the part of psychologists and physicians is is very tethered to an individual child and their imagined future and how to kind of figure out what that future is going to look like so that those adults know how to treat a particular child in the present. So so to be specific, if you have a child who, you know, is around puberty and asserting a trans identity, the adults surrounding that child are trying to figure out how they can know if the child is quote unquote really trans, right? So that if if they can be certain that this child is trans, then they understand that a certain course of medical treatment might be appropriate if they know for sure that the child you know, is going to maintain more of a non-binary um, set of identities, then maybe uh, then, then the path forward through medicalization is less clear, um, but not altogether certain. Uh, so I think that, that this idea of forecasting the future is a real preoccupation um, for folks that are trying to figure out how to... Um, understand a particular child's constellation of behaviors and statements and and sort of how to parent them moving forward. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I talk about epiphany days, I'm trying to mark this thing that I saw um, in story after story parents told me where there would be a series of things that would happen, right? They would have a three-year-old who would cry and scream every time they tried to put a dress on that child. And initially they thought, well, does the child have some kind of sensory defensiveness? Uh, yeah. Does the child have a cotton allergy? Does there a wool allergy? Does the child, you know, whatever is the child, what, what, what's going on? Or do they have stomach mm-hmm. aches, right? Mm-hmm. Because kids didn't have language for what was going on. And then as the child grew, it would consolidate into more and more different examples of, of things that had something to do with gender And then all of a sudden, there would be an experience, a moment, um, uh, an interaction where all of those things that had happened before um, crystallized into an understanding that this particular child had an issue at the level of core gender identity, that it wasn't just about sort of being a boy who likes girl things or um, a feminine boy, but that this child actually felt like a girl and that that was something very real for that child. 
And that was the epiphany, that it wasn't just about behavior or desire or mannerisms or the perceptions of others, that this was an issue at the level of core identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it sounds like, you know, um, this, this, this thing of like, and I'm kind of doing it, right? Like I'm trying to make the epiphany day a microcosm is like exactly counter to the kind of lived particular felt moment of transformation where, you know, it, it you, you begin to perceive what's actually happening. You describe the epiphany day as an event where quote, dis- disparate fragments cohered for parents. So that crystallization and you start to see uh, an experience of, you know, a, a, conf- a conflictual relationship to a sign gender. Um, and so the epiphany is such an important revelation. Um, you write that it's because, quote, cisgender alignment is a taken for granted expectation by most parents, so much so that it takes tremendous counter evidence to refute. You know, so when a, a coherent set of gender transgression starts to get sort of strung together, uh, you say a common move is for parents to like actively, uh, uh, you know, remove the the room, as you put it, that's required for children to kind of realize their authentic gendered self, if I can put it in those terms. The book taught me so much about the difficult choices that come with being like present to the coming into being of a transgender being. Um, and so, you know, did you, in terms of your like intended audience, did you, and you interviewed like over 150 parents, kids, clinicians, and activists all over the country. Um, in doing the work, did you hope it would serve this specific kind of purpose for parents? When you imagine your audiences, how broad was it? Um, did you have sort of an ideal reader in mind at all? Well, that's a complicated question about academia. So mm-hmm. I am a tenure-track faculty member, and this was my dissertation book. So the first draft of it was a dissertation that was written to produce a PhD. And the book was written to produce tenure Mm -hmm. and um, job security. And that requires a certain kind of conversation with a literature, right? And for me, that literature was the sociology of gender. It was queer theory. It was gender theory more broadly. And I did write the book with an eye toward um, understanding a couple of things, um, and, and, and each one of those things had a sort of different intended audience. Part of it was that I was just interested in the phenomenon, that I was interested in what was happening around these kids, and I wanted to write about it. And that was my just basic intellectual and emotional curiosity. Those kinds of questions, I think, structure writing that speaks to a broad readership. I'm curious about this. You should be too. What can we both learn? And then, you know, there was this question of how do I help sociologists and sociology, as I'm sure you know, is the study of people in groups and in societies and in culture together. Um, What can we learn about the way culture works in the contemporary United States from studying, you know, this emergent social movement and and set of of categories? Uh, And then also kind of trying to add to a a rich lineage of theory about how gender matters, between people within social institutions to the state um, and being in conversation with academics whose work, uh, you know, when I was in college, provided me a way to understand my own life. And then as I became an intellectual, provided me with some of the most rich and challenging, you know, questions to think about intellectually. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was my experience, especially in, you know, like a third year gender and sexuality course, you know, like just encountering theory that really like threw the shutters open and illuminated so much. Um, and and it, I know you've talked about like wanting uh, uh, that you, you know, went to law school, but wanting um, to find work that you couldn't find after that, uh, that kind of, as you say, embodied the like intellectual spirit of anti-racist legal analysis of history. Um, so following your curiosity is, uh, it sounds like has been um, sort of a, a guiding compass in a lot of ways um, for you, which is amazing. Like, you know, it's, it's like so easy to kind of fall into a certain kind of careerism, especially when it comes to academia. But you say in the, in the inter- interview, I mentioned that, um, you know, in terms of your research, if people weren't sure that it was a good idea, you kind of felt like you were on the right track. Um, just like maintaining a certain kind of oppositional position. And in terms of like that oppositional, uh, like power of your work, I, I wanted to talk about uh, your response to Emily Bazelon's uh, New York Times piece, quite a controversial uh, recent piece from mid-June uh, entitled The Battle Over Gender Therapy. Um, you tweeted about the article saying, you know, uh, we just can't compare this generation of trans kids to make any rhetorical point we want. Um, you know, I have a lot myself to say about the Bazelon piece, but like, um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, about you know the kind of framing of it in some ways like there there are a number of pieces like this that come from the new york times like i think about the context of the new york times reporting on uh the legacy of colonialism in in haiti as though like people in you know caribbean studies hadn't been pointing this out for a long time like in in a it's not the same by any means but like there's this way in which bazelon is like boasting in that article about having exclusive access to folks inside and outside the field of gender-related therapy um, I wondered if you could comment maybe on the framing, the authoritative framing there of the article and the kind of presentation of this investigation by Bazelon as a kind of scoop, right? As an expose. Um, like this is, this sort of access is not unique to Bazelon, but she's sort of like figuring herself as having, you know, the the specific access that, that gives us the readership of the New York Times, like unique access. Um, that's potentially damaging, right? Like, taking that position and then making the kind of claims that she does? Well, I have a few responses um, to what you're saying. I, I do think she had a certain amount of access, but it wasn't necessarily because nobody else could have that access. It was just that she spent a lot of time talking to a lot of people. And mm-hmm. I believe that to be true. But what this frame, what she does in this piece, and and this is, um, not dissimilar from from other uh, major news outlets who've positioned things similarly, is that when you frame this as opposing viewpoints, one imagines a football field split down the center. And there are the people on one side who are experts, nationally recognized experts on gender, who think that, you know, affirmative therapy is great and as little oversight as possible over individual cases should be had. And, you know, and then there's a, another half of a football field that says, whoa, 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 these kids are being transitioned much too quickly. A bunch of them are going to regret. Uh, this is a big problem. And that there are these factions that are equally distributed that are, are bo- both holding extreme positions and totally contradicting each other. That is 
not what is happening. So every single major medical governing board in this country and psychological and psychiatric governing board has put forth a public statement saying that affirmation of trans identities is the way to go, right? Mm -hmm. that, that we are now in a moment where there is actually massive consensus that affirming and facilitating gender nonconformity in children leads to better psychological, social, educational, physical outcomes for those children. That is the consensus. Now, within that consensus, there is some disagreement about the line between support and scaffolding and medical gatekeeping that is transphobic. And there is some disagreement, for example, about how much therapy somebody should have to have before they can access trans-related medical care. And even for adults, letters from therapists are required for um, gender confirming surgeries. So the, the, the medical establishment is invested in a certain degree of gatekeeping. I think that there is a kind of conservative political imaginary in which, you know, people are thinking that somehow these children walk into a clinic, within five minutes they're labeled trans, handed a bottle of hormones and a syringe and told to go home and have a nice life. Mm -hmm. And that is, in my experience, not what is happening. Right. Um, but what she doesn't talk about in the article that is a lot of what I see is that there are constellations of adults around these children, many of whom have medical or psychological expertise, who are very anxious about bearing the responsibility for helping these kids make decisions that are going to affect their bodies in significant ways. And I think that we understand the complexities of adolescent psychological development pretty well. We understand um, the ways in which gender is a process and is emergent very well. And um, that, that it is anxiety provoking for parents and for clinicians to kind of know, not in cases where kids have been consistently and persistently trans from the age of three, like those are not the kids that we're talking about. We're talking about kids that hit puberty and have a crisis, mm -hmm. right? Their bodies start changing. And the flexibility and 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 that they had before disappears, and they feel assaulted, right? Mm -hmm. And that can look to adults as if it's happening all of a sudden, but puberty happens all of a sudden, right? Uh, I think most of us had the experience of being like, "Oh my God, this isn't my body. What's happening?" Um, and yet somehow we expect trans and gender nonconforming youth to have a to have a, a a kind of certainty around things that that nobody has about almost anything at that point. Hmm. So um, the problem with the frame is that the the number of people that are actively speaking out um, in inflammatory ways against these treatments who are not doing it to bolster their you know sort of political cred as conservatives, the actual clinicians, like are a very, very small number. They're often motivated by political or religious or, you know, other kinds of agendas. Um, and, you know, there are always dissenting voices in every, you know, conversation. And giving those dissenting voices equal footing is um, misleading in many ways, as is the fact that every single article about trans youth talks about what they're calling regretters. Hmm. 
Yeah. And what they're really talking about are people who start some version of a transition and then retransition back to where they were originally or some other version of their gender assigned at birth. Now, in my experience, not only is that very uncommon, and in fact, you know, she talks about Ken Zucker, um, who's a fairly controversial figure uh, in the world of, of, of trans medical care. Um, he's often seen as somebody who is uh, um, particularly conservative in his approach to treating trans people. And he admitted to me in our conversations that there's only one child in his, you know, decade, many decades of clinical work that made a medical transition and then transitioned back. And it's not clear if that child regretted having made the decision. That's the other piece of this. Mm -hmm. So what everyone is afraid of is that a child will, you know, maybe make a social transition in school, choose a new name, alter their peer relationships, and then decide they want to transition back. If that is allowed, maybe the child won't regret having given it a try, right? And it's really about, we, we turn the volume up and the intensity up on these decisions so acutely that making the wrong one feels utterly catastrophic as an idea. Yeah. Right. And it becomes impossible to imagine gender as a set of choices that one can work through, right? Mm -hmm. um, without having to know from minute one what the end goal is. And that's a perspective that was absent from that article um, and from most articles that I think is actually the right perspective, that what you have is a certain amount of uncertainty, uh, a tremendous amount of anxiety, a completely tender and poignant emotional and, and, and physical time in someone's life and a bunch of people trying to work together to figure things out the best they can. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, if we had to diagnose Bazelon <laughs> and that might be my next question, it's like, there seems to just be a generic host hostility to messiness in journalistic writing. Um, and this desire for, as you put it, like epistemological certainty, um, and so, yeah, I mean, but that's that's extremely costly. And I, I like this this sort of metaphor of the football field split down the center between affirmation and anxiety. Um, you know, there needs to be uh, a far messier field of play, um, you know, and, and this is, I think, why in the in the interview you talk about like visibility as a double sided coin where like, yes, you have acceptance, um, but visibility can also mean an escalating backlash. Um, and this like consolidation of conservative rhetoric. And like, to that point, I, I definitely want to come back to like the way that Bazelon talks about the specter of the regretter, but, you know, like to that point about uh, the risks of, 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 you know, kind of depicting the, the discourse is just like split down the middle. Um, you know, this is how Bazelon kind of, you know, this is the picture she gives us. She says there are these two intersecting forces, just two that are clashing, right? Um, increase, increasing number of teenagers seeking gender care, and then this right-wing back backlash. These are the forces that Bazelon kind of reduces it to. And so what's interesting to me is that like, she's engaging at length with how uncertainty in research can be misused by trans-exclusionary conservatives to basically punish the entire trans community, but then takes herself like an aggressively ambivalent stance in the article. Um, and I feel like just that appeal to balance, like what I'm hearing you say is that it is itself problematic. You know, she's quoting everyone 
without offering any like through line, which might, you know, critique a position or offer clarity. And it seems to me like this, this one person, Scott F. Leibowitz, becomes like a kind of cipher for Bazelon's own uncertainty about medical and social supports for transgender kids. Like she cites him at the end of the article as saying that there is both, quote, enough ev- evidence and not enough evidence that you can kind of like leverage either thing for your own political purposes, I suppose. Um, you know, you're writing in trans kids about how many of the people you spoke to qu- were, quote, actively seeking to understand the same phenomenon that you were, but with different epistemological orientations. Um, You know, can we like diagnose Bazelon's epistemological orientation as it were? Like, does she reveal it in some ways through her citations and by prioritizing like certain voices in the article? I mean, that's a complicated question. I think that in an effort to look even handed empirically, the piece is misleading in presenting it as if there are these two sides. Basically, the two sides, really, if you, if you want to be clear about what, this, what, the, what the extreme stakes are, are people mm-hmm. that think that trans identities in children and adults are legitimate, benign versions of, of human life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the other side, there are people that think that trans is a psychopathology and that it should be eradicated, cured, changed, curtailed, hidden, right? Those are the two sides. And so if if you want to position her, I, I think I'm slightly more optimistic than you are, because all of her people land on the side of this is some version of acceptable personhood, right? Mm. So like Ron DeSantis is not in this article, Right. But we know what he thinks. Right. So I think that um, I think that she's not she's not quite as as malignant um, as as some other people who've written about these. But she's also not particularly um, careful in in her. In her. suggestion that uh, the affirmative community is split Um, Mm -hmm. because I think it's far more in even the folks in WPATH that were revising the standards of care that she was writing about, you know, critique them. Sure. If you think that there's, there's too much gatekeeping, but they weren't saying that these kids shouldn't get treatment. They were talking about how they should get treatment. So, Mm -hmm. and they weren't really all that concerned with the specter of regret. The idea is that they can help kids and families. And really it's the parent's decision because children don't have the right to make their own medical decisions till they're 18. Um, you know, sort of how to get the, the, the best outcome where everybody has the most certainty they can have that they're doing the right things. And that, mm-hmm. and, and those people being the adults who ultimately have the authority to make decisions on children's behalves. Right. Yeah, I mean, I I really I appreciate that perspective. I think I was, um, you know, mostly critical in reading the article. But you're right that there that there's an you know a, an aspiration to balance that we don't necessarily have to see as malignant. Um, but you know, like at the same time that that lack of care um, can be costly. I think in certain ways, like 
stigmatizing um, support in some ways, like in particular, like the kind of um, the flourishing of social media supports for people coming out come is something that um, I think she takes aim at to some extent in the article. But um, this this idea of the regretter, I guess, is is something that obviously you're extremely nuanced about in the book. You take it very seriously how like facilitating transition really hinges on a, a form of forecasting that is difficult to do. Um, and, and so it seems to me like Bazelon is like leaning pretty hard into sort of an anxiety inspiring set of concerns about the regretter. Um, it almost feeds into this sort of extremist rhetoric of like Abigail Schreier's narrative in irreparable harm, um, like layering regretter stories on top of one another as though they become like incontrovertible proof. Um, and then like leaving it to, I guess, the reader to determine what, what precisely they are proof of. Um, like I might be reading too much into it, but the article feels to me like a case in point for the claim that you make in the book that the regretter serves as a symbolic container that produces the outcome it purports to reflect. Do you think that, you know, this is an article that could be potentially exploited by transphobic groups? It is not, of course, like a far right by any means, like depiction of this debate, but, you know, Bazelon has to be aware of how her appeal to balance could potentially lead to the article being leveraged by like conservative populists, I think. Sure. I mean, I, I think conservative po- people have their own media and they don't really need right. the New York Times for that. Sure. Um, so I, I don't know. I feel less concerned about that. But I do think that, you know, look, there are a lot of different reasons that people talk about regretters. Right. Mm-hmm. And there are also some, quote unquote, liberal media. I'm thinking about Jesse Singal in The Atlantic, who wrote entire stories about regretters. So The New York Times is not not the biggest offender. Um, and I do think that it is important, like and this is actually probably I mean, this is a different podcast. But part of the problem that, <clears throat> quote unquote, liberals have is that we're self-critical, right, that we're actually willing to have some equanimity in the way that we discuss things. Um, even in the face of then having to like deal with uncertainty, having to deal with internal contradictions, whereas, you know, conservatives tend to be more, you know, sort of black and white about things. I don't necessarily think that that's the wrong approach. I think that the intellectually nuanced approach is always the right one. We don't win arguments by pretending that problems aren't there. But I think that what I would say is that I mean, I I would say a couple of things. I would say that, I mean, you're not asking me the question of why I think regretter discourse is so powerful, but I'm going to kind of answer your question by discussing that a little bit. I think that it does a few things. So first of all, it imagines a kind of human certainty that we have over almost no decision in our lives. Can you imagine if we started telling people, you need to go to therapy for six months before you get braces to make sure that you really want to have straight teeth. We, mm-hmm. You need to go to therapy for six months before you get married or before you pierce your ears or get a tattoo. Or And I'm not analogizing these things. I'm not saying that being trans is like getting married. And, and you talk a lot, you've talked a lot so far today about ambivalence and uncertainty and our discomfort with it. And I think that that is a fundamental human predicament that far exceeds transness. And so this 
attempt to prevent people from regretting something isn't something that happens in most areas of life that we consider to be benign, right? Choices. Mm -hmm. So when you focus on regretters in the trans context, this is something that I've said before, um, that, that we've been sort of trained by psychologists to think that if there's any possible way for someone to not be trans, that's the best outcome. And so what we're protecting against is the idea that someone who doesn't need to be trans might end up that way or might end up that way for a little while. And that comes from either our fear that they will want to retransition or, um, uh, you know, some kinds of political commentary from older uh, lesbian and gay activists that suggest that some of today's trans youth might have been gay in another time. The, you know, Andrew Sullivan has said this all over Twitter and various other places, but the presumption there is that that would have been a better outcome. You could have just been gay, not trans, mm -hmm. that trans would be the suboptimal outcome, or that we should have some generational investment in maintaining very particular identity categories, the ones that we are familiar with and comfortable with and nostalgic about. Right. But if you start thinking of trans and this is the fundamental paradigm shift that I think is not fully made its way into culture. If you think of 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 gender nonconformity as a fine choice for inhabiting a body and a, and a personhood in the world. And you de um, intensify how important each individual gendered choice is then it becomes easier not to be so afraid that a child will try something and then change their mind, right? Now it becomes more complicated when we get into medical treatments and we can talk about that. But I think the first thing that happened historically is that, and, 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 and the New York Times article points to this as well, is that the first set of things people became okay with were what were called social transitions for kids. Sure, change your name, you know, identify as whatever you identify as, like, let's buy you some new clothing and let's see how it goes. Right. Um, and I think that we we have some agreement now that that seems like a fine thing to allow children to explore. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you don't think that's a fine thing for them to explore, that is because you think that being trans is a less legitimate way to be a person in the world. Right. And that's the epistemological framework that produces regretters as a category, because then you're producing somebody who has to regret that decision. Oh, I tried that thing and it didn't work. And boy, do I regret that instead of I tried that thing and I really learned a lot about myself and what I was trying to use gender as a solution for. That is so interesting. And there's so much there. Um, you know, it makes me Think about the story of of Al Val, who is a, a Canadian comedian who came out as as transgender during the pandemic, and how she talks about you know keeping it a secret for so long, like literally saying like I'm going to go to my grave with this secret, and then deciding to be happy now, um, and contacting her uncle in San Francisco, and literally experiencing what you just described of like let's see how it goes, like let's spend a week being being like savoring the freedom of being you know your authentic self and then there was no going back right um there's there's well let me can i give can i offer a slight reframe to what you just said 
Of course. So rather than spending a week being your authentic self, as if that is a thing that already existed, right? Right. I think it's, you know, spend a week seeing if this is your authentic self, right? Because the thing that, 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 that we tend not to think about with regard to gender is that gender is a process, hmm. right? It's a process of being a person in the world. It is not an option to not be a gendered person in the world, right? And we can talk about where non-binary identities fall in there. Uh, I have my own particular perspective on that. But you don't get to mm -hmm. opt out of gender completely because things are gendered. If not by you, then by others. And so it is really, we are all in an iterative process of creating ourselves in relationship to the categories that are available to us in relationship to the expectations of others, in relationship to the social scripts we follow. And that is always a process. Now, for some people, there's an identity category that they neatly fit into for the entirety of their lives. And for other people, that is a more fluid process. And part of being truly gender expansive is saying like, yes, if you say this is how it's going to be forever, this is how it's going to be forever. And if you're not sure, you're not sure. And all of these are legitimate genders, legitimate ways to gender oneself. Hmm. And so I think that the truly expansive approach is that, you know, a 10 year old child has 10 years worth of knowledge and a lifetime of opportunity, which is not to say that you shouldn't let that child be trans because they have a lifetime of opportunity, but to say, sure, be trans, let's see, right? And if that doesn't work, that's okay. You get to choose because it's your life and your personhood. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I have a, a friend who is a trans man who, told me that his father once said to him, you're the only you that there is, you can't be the wrong version of it. <laughs> and I thought it was such a poignant thing that I've started saying it to my own daughter. And, and that's the bottom line. If we could import that perspective into our understandings of other people's gender identities, I think there would be a lot more peace, you know? Mm. Yeah, no. And I appreciate that extra level of, of nuance. I really do. I think, you know, it makes me think about how I'm using authentic. I mean, it's not a word that you throw around and it is kind of totalizing, right? It's, it's this thing that says, yeah, that there is a right version and that you might be out of alignment with it. Um, and that you need to find it and it puts pressure on it. It's like, as you say, it's about becoming it, making it easier to not be afraid and you know, but, but you know what, we are all often not in alignment with our authenticity, right? Mm -hmm. Like a lot of social life demands that we not be. I think people have talked about that in new ways after quarantine, right? Yeah. Like my authentic self would be perfectly happy wearing sweatpants every day, but I kind of can't get away with that. <laughs> and and I don't, I don't mean to be dismissive because I do, but I do think that there are many of us who don't live in alignment with our authentic gender because there are social expectations. Now, some of those social expectations are, you know, I mean, I want to call them benign, but they're not benign. I mean, ask any woman who 
gets home at the end of the day and takes off her very uncomfortable bra, whether wearing it is fully in alignment with her authenticity. Some women would say yes, because I actually feel like I'm expressing something. And other women are like, this is a torture device, Mm -hmm. clearly designed by men, right? Like, so it's, but, but I think that um, gender is what psychoanalysts call a compromise formation, right? It is a way in which we attempt to merge what feels authentic to us in the moment with what is intelligible and recognizable and acceptable to the people that we interact with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, there's, I could keep going and going. This is, <laughs> you know, this is so interesting, but uh, I guess I'll use um, the Bazelon art- article. I'll gesture to it once more on the question of like visual culture, visuality, you know, there's this concern in that article with things like butterfly videos, uh, which ba- Bazelon calls like these beautiful portrayals of self-transformation that she's at, at the same time, like representing as both valuable and like misleading. Um, the idea seems to be that, you know, this kind of almost pop cultural form of facilitation and support is like baiting teenagers, as she puts it, in progressive communities, people with privilege in particular. There's like this subtle kind of um, class critique in the article uh, as like jumping onto some kind of fashionable cause um, that they're, that they're, you know, finding something there and, and almost exploiting it to some extent that she, she literally at one point calls it a kind of internet fueled mass craze. Um, so, you know, there's this kind of like specter of, of pop culture's influence on impressionable young people. And, and, you know, as it seems to me, like in my reading, almost like an etiology for what she calls the unexplained rise in trans identified teenagers. But then like, there's also this sense that, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it is a source of, um, you know, self-love and validation and, and support. Um, you know, there's a bold use of photography in the article to, I think, also embody that kind of self-love to some extent. Um, do, you th- do you see these kind of competing messages in the article about the power of visual, visual culture in particular? It's not necessarily something that you talk at length about, in the book, it's there is some stuff um, toward the end of the book about like the body and performance and the choice of the cover image for the book. Um, what do you think the effect is of, of of photography? Basically, like does it tell a story of of either suffering or strength? Um, you know, what what role does it serve in some ways in like preserving and, and supporting trans lives and selves more broadly? Well, I think you're talking about two very different different media, right? So one is the YouTube Mm -hmm. video, right? The YouTube trans coming out narrative. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that, that this fear of what psychologists call social contagion is a, is a pretty, um, it's a pretty big question right now. So are there trans kids? The, the, the fear is that a vulnerable child who is probably not trans goes on YouTube, sees a bunch of uh, videos of triumphant trans youth transitioning and thinks, wow, the solution to my um, social problems or my depression or my bad body image is transness. And I will have this experience of emerging from my cocoon, a beautiful butterfly, right? And and that mm-hmm. that makes somebody trans. Um, it's such a perversion of what is actually happening that it's hard to know where to begin. So first of all, the implicit message is that 
the proper way to become trans is to see a bunch of very unhappy, suffering trans people and feel like you have no alternative. You have to do it anyway. <laughs> right. Uh, right. This yeah. is, this is the, this is, this is, this mirrors um, uh, conversations like Anita Hill on hom homosexuality, right? Like that, that, you know, gay people should suffer and be invisible so that people are only gay if they have absolutely no alternative. Right. Um, that is, absurd and offensive as a paradigm. But beyond that, the emergence narrative, the kid who suffers, 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 and then breaks out of the chrysalis, is the story of a child that's, whose gender has been repressed and regulated, finally breaking into some sense of delight in being who that child is. I met many facilitative families whose children were enjoying their gender all the way along. If the cultural pathways include a path where kids can continue to experiment with gender and see that as part of a lifelong project of being human, if that's the thing they want to experiment with, many people have pretty unremarkable cisgender identities and are perfectly happy not thinking too much about that. But for people for whom gender is a, a locus of curiosity, conflict, exploration, play, sadness, whatever, the more possibilities we have for that to be someone's narrative, the more YouTube videos there'll be of it. So if you have an issue with butterfly narratives, maybe don't make it so hard for kids to emerge. And then mm -hmm. that won't have to be such an unbearable triumph over despair. The question of whether there is a social contagion effect is slightly different. And I think one's perspective on it depends on whether or not you think transness is a problem. If you think it's a completely valid way to be, then someone seeing it and deciding, wow, that feels like me, is just how any of us find anything, mm -hmm. right? Like my child is obsessed with horses. And the reason that she knows that is because her grandfather, who is a veterinarian, took her to a horse farm when she was three. Mm -hmm. Now, if she had never met a horse, she might not identify, and her gender identity is horse girl, mm -hmm. as a horse girl. Mm -hmm. But she really, really does because she had the opportunity to. Social mm -hmm. contagion? Sure. Sure. We, we proselytize animal love in our family. Um, and so I think... You know, I think that I see that differently. I do understand parental anxiety. Um, when you have a kid that has a really complicated psychic life and a bunch of intersecting diagnoses, you know, I think parents are naturally confused about how to disentangle gender from any number of other things that might be going on with that kid. Um, and I've seen that play out in a lot of different and interesting ways. but. Again, the more benignly we approach gender diversity, right, the more that is not the source of dysfunction or unhappiness, right? And you can actually separate it out from the underlying clinical depression or the, the kind of complexities of an ASD diagnosis or something like that, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it reminds me um, on some level of the way that like Lindy West talks about encountering, I think it's like Leonard Nimoy's photography 
and like, you know, willing herself to see the fat body as beautiful. And she says that it was almost a, a form of sorcery, right? But it worked, um, basically demedicalizing the fat body. And, and you know, it beca- becomes an inhabitable subject position in some ways. Uh, being happy now, again, is sort of how she she puts it, rather than imagining the fat body as something that needs to have part of itself excised in order to be an inhabitable body. Um, it's not, again, like a direct analogy, but it's um, what, you know, what it kind of made me think of there. Um, but, you know, I wanted to, I guess, talk about um, this, as you say in the book, this kind of emerging marketplace for expertise. Um, it, you know, you say trans is not just an identity, it's an industry um, and the kind of place of expertise in some ways, like you've, you've spoken to the kind of just realities of like, and the parameters, uh, around being an academic and like writing for tenure, but like, I'm very struck by, um, your kind of, you know, command of language, the importance that you give, uh, precision of language in the book, um, you know, words like immutable come up again and again this notion that, you know, gender is simultaneously an accomplishment and at the same time immutable is this like delicate balance that you, you try and achieve in your own sort of, as it were, epistemological orientation in terms of your expertise. Um, you know, you, you, it's, it's clear that you're trying to just pack an enormous amount of, I think, insight into like, you're, you're, you're kind of economical with language, um, in, in sentences like this one, for example, you say gender and sexuality evolve in intricate relation relationship to one another. Emergent sexuality often trades in gender behavior. It can be a way to signal availability to the objects we desire. Um, I wondered if you could talk just about how much time the book took to write, the process of writing, and this this dedication to kind of precision, um, and whether you know, I guess, in terms of audience, you think. That precision, that theoretical sophistication, is important. Who who it's important to, and and how it might offer, as you say, adults the cultural tools for interpreting transgression as a clue to underlying identity characteristics. I mean, yeah, I, I, the book took me a lifetime to write because I've been a student of gender forever, mm-hmm. right? As we all are. Um, I think. It, it did take me quite a while to write. It took me about 10 years from the beginning of doing the research to when the book actually, uh, you know, hit the internet. Um, and part of that was uh, about needing several years to do the research, to spend time with people, to really know deeply the community and what was happening. Part of it was the demands of it not being the only thing I do. I, uh, I you know, I teach and I um, supervise students and, and all of that takes a certain amount of time. Um, I think I learned how to write a book by writing this book, which is not an easy thing to learn to do. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, and I, I, I had a child during the time that that happened. And as those of us who have children know, that that's not a... Uh, a negligible commitment of time and, and energy and emotion. Um, and mm-hmm. so it, it, and I, I think that it benefited. I mean, I think that we have this, one of the things I see happening in academia that I think is very destructive is this push for like citation counts and publication counts. And, um, and 
you know, this book is an intellectual process took some time to germinate. And I think that good intellectual work can, I mean, sometimes you just have an idea and you just put it out there and it really resonates. But for a book length treatment of something as complex as this, you know, you have to really sit with it for a while uh, and, and see how all the different ways you can understand it. Um, and I appreciate the commentary on language. I, you know, writing as a craft is something that I work very hard on. Um, and I do struggle for precision because I think particularly when you're talking about topics that are controversial, it's important to be understood for having said the thing one meant to say. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do tend to be pretty careful as much as I can be at any rate. Yeah. And um, I think it's super valuable. I mean, um, you know, something that you take a certain amount of like, you know, critical, uh, 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 a critical perspective on is, is some of the kind of market based thinking that uh, has prevented, it seems to me in, in, in your, in my reading of your book, uh, parent run organizations from actually adopting, um, you know, the, the perspectives and the approaches of adult transgender activists um, you know, the, you know, you're taking issue with that specific kind of like tactical approach to political communication that exists within like, I think parents sort of activist groups, um, to just increase the visibility of, of, you know, transgender lives, post transit transition, transgender lives in particular. Um, and, and it, it does seem to be there's a certain kind of like allergy to, complexity and messiness that lead some of these groups to sort of just um, adopt, uh, uh, as you say, like one of two kind of narrative strategies, basically. Um, you know, like you you write that it was the parents' aim to, quote, convert their child's subjective self-understandings into socially sanctioned forms of identity and personhood and center the idea that their, their children are exquisitely vulnerable to death. Um, you describe this as impression management. Do you think like just fundamentally that accepting the messy reality of our lives means abandoning to some extent impression management, or do you get where those groups were kind of coming from in, in taking those sorts of approaches to public communication, basically? Well, let's be clear about something. Largely speaking, parent organizations are not led by trans people. They're led by parents. What do parents want? They want the most conflict and trauma-free path forward for their children. They want to create happy, you know, self-sustaining adults. We are taught that the best way to do that is to find a normative path that's not going to alienate too many other people. And so the messaging is often like, how do we create the most normative, non-normative kids, right? And part of that, you know, and, and, and the conflict with earlier trans communities is less about that they're messy because everybody's messy and more about trying to create a world. And, and I, I believe this to be well-intentioned where children think that transness can be an easy path. So if you introduce a bunch of kids who um, will never have experienced their natal puberties and will likely pass as adults to a generation of of let's say, and this was, I think, where the, the biggest anxiety um, was around older trans women, right, who didn't pass, who had really difficult lives, who often, you know, 
had pain in their stories and in their bodies, right? Um, that that was not the version of transness they wanted for their kids. They were desperately trying to create a version of transness without trauma. Right. And I think the unintended consequence of that is that the incredible wisdom gleaned from decades of navigating cisgender culture was lost, right? The tremendous sense of both acknowledgement of the difficulties of being non-normative, of which there are no matter what generation you're in, and disappointing other people or scaring them or angering them, and then finding a way to an identity that has a, a sense of agency and beauty and pleasure in it, right? And so those of us from older queer or trans generations really understand the value of the struggle for legitimacy. And I'm not suggesting that I think that young trans people should have to fight as hard as older ones did. I'm just suggesting that the connections there um, are, are worth the discomfort for cisgender parents that they might produce. Yeah. Um, and it's just like notable to think that like one of the corrections in like the Emily Bazelon article is that, you know, um, uh, people who leveled complaints at uh, Ken Zucker's method uh, were activists, not parent groups. Like that's an interesting distinction uh, to have to make. And one that, you know, is, is maybe worth unpacking. I don't know, but I did want to, I guess, ask you about the place of um, Dr. Kenneth Zucker, this, you know, as you say, like quite polarizing figure um, and maybe the relationship between Zucker and like vulnerability, this, this, this way that you theorize vulnerability in your work, you know, like there's, there's this book that you contributed to and co-edited um, which is called Other, comma, Please Specify, Queering Methodologies in Sociology. Um, you know, the, that, that book has uh, so much about sort of methodology itself to, you know, it, uh, in terms of trying to kind of transform not just academic uh, work, I think, but um, maybe the place of the expert more broadly, like thinking about experts not as, as purely about like impression management, like that's clearly a part of it, but trying to like politicize respectability politics, impression management as part of like the production of knowledge. Um, and so, I mean, like in, in the chapter that you contribute to that book, um, you argue about uh, that, like the orthodoxies that we learn in graduate school don't feel helpful when you get out into the world and like experience the messiness of it. Um, and that chapter is called The Mess. And that central metaphor of the mess is, is interesting to me for a number of reasons. You know, there's this quote from Angela Davis where she talks about how, you know, feminism for her is about troubling neat analyses and dealing with the messy world. She says it makes us, you know, so feminism makes us recognize social realities that don't always reflect the neatness of our analytical categories. Um, and that we need to tr be willing to try to begin to like approximate the messiness of social reality. But, you know, what you're saying is that, to quote you in that chapter, uh, some of the political impulses that lead us to do politically inflected emancipatory research also condition us to have an anxious relationship to the very sexualities and genders we seek to liberate. Um, what were you trying to communicate by saying that? And, you know, th this, this idea that, you know, professionalization, 
trying to minimize your vulnerability, those things like are actively working to kind of uh, counter the goal of creating the kinds of methods that you're basically like calling for in the book more broadly. That book was really written by a collection of us um, who are of a particular generation who've done social science research on gender and sexuality related topics. And, you know, part of what the book emerged from a series of conversations, conversations in which we sort of realized that we felt that the bar for entry for our work was higher than um, work on less uh, controversial topics. Hmm. So to get published in top tier journals, um, one had to have a level of uh, novelty to one's analysis, a level of technical sophistication that would not have been necessary for more kind of middle of the road topics, right? That there's a certain amount of need to surmount people's skepticism about the topic in order to be heard, right? Or, mm-hmm. or, the, or the presumption would be, well, this is a, I mean, I remember uh, one of the biggest talks of my career, one of the questions I got was, you know, from somebody who said, well, let's just pretend that I have an antipathy to trans people. And, you know, I want to say to you, like, well, how many of them are there even? Is it even worth studying? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, would we say that to, you know, um, people in a minority religious group? Would we say that about, you know, people with a, a particular, I don't know, social experience or I mean, it, it's like you can't imagine saying that to almost any other group of people. And so, um, you know. And, and my response was, well, number one, we don't, like, how many are there? We actually don't know. And I reminded this person that there were probably trans students in their classes that they had no idea were there, right? Mm-hmm. So we really don't know how many trans people there are, um, which also points to the methodological complexity of studying something and studying something that's in formation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that book was really written for graduate students, for junior researchers who are thinking through not only what are the most innovative ways to, for example, figure out how many trans people there are, um, so empirical strategies, but then also, and this is what I wrote about, some of the psychic strategies that we need um, for for confronting field work where you can't necessarily walk into the field with a hypothesis you're going to test mm-hmm. because the situation is so emergent that the that the value the scientific value is in being there mm. and in being present for the messiness of what's going on in the social world and you know angela davis is one of my favorite writers and um you know when she said that i think she was actually talking about the kind of sense that you know you think that you're solving one problem and sometimes you're creating another so for example she's very famously written about um what she calls carceral feminism so the mm. idea that the thing to do about rape is to put a bunch of men in jail. And she said, well, that's great, except that our carceral system disproportionately punishes poor people of color. And so that isn't going to punish the, and as we see this happening, right, the incredibly wealthy white men that are responsible for tremendous victimization and because of their power and social influence end up, for example, on the Supreme Court. Yeah. So that, that, that the messiness of the world means that our social and political responses are never simple. And our um, research methods may have to also be somewhat nimble. Mm-hmm. So it's precisely about like trying to deal with 
these emergent problems and innovate, I think, methodology in, in ways that are, yeah, are not orthodox. Like, um, you know, so trying to blend, as the book does, queer theory and empirical research, two things that have historically been like at odds um, to achieve a specific kind of like political intellectual goal, you know? That's also that's also a bit of a misperception. Um, I don't know that queer theory and empirical research have always been at odds. I think that they see themselves as odds now. Heather Love uh, actually just released a book um, that's on this very point. Um, that's on the fact that that many of the things that we see as fundamental and 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 new about queer theoretical interventions in the '90s actually were happening in the social sciences in the '60s and '70s. So going back to like you know some of the the foundational work by people like Laud Humphreys and and um, you know kind of uh, trying to destigmatize homosexuality and to divorce sexual behavior from identity and community membership and and Evelyn Hooker and you know that 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 a lot of um, Mary McIntosh the homosexual role says something that looks an awful lot like what Foucault wrote in the history of sexuality she just did it twelve years earlier <laughs> and so I think that that because of the cultural moment that queer theory emerged in, because it emerged in the academy, because it emerged in the humanities, it imagined itself to be doing something completely novel and then positioned itself as anti-methodological. But many of those insights came from earlier, quote unquote, deviant studies in sociology, which, you know, we look at the idea of deviance now and, and, and see it as somewhat a, a stigmatizing framework. But oftentimes what sociologists of deviance did um, was take things that people stigmatized and tried to understand them as forms of social variation. Hmm. Right. And what what people's investments were in deviant identities or in, um, you know, ways of being that were outside the norm. And so I, I think I, you know, I've I've long felt that that um, this understanding that queer theory has of itself uh, as being antidisciplinary is fairly um I don't know. It's anathema to my understanding of what's valuable in it. Yeah, I think, and that was my encounter with it. I mean, in an English and cultural studies department um, that saw it as as just sort of you know uh, simplistically, almost like and and hegemonically, like against um, a certain kind of uh, you know uh, disciplinary categorization, um, and and that led to on occasion these sort of go nowhere conversations that were mostly about just purely like linguistic fashion in my experience um uh rather than trying to like grasp at the roots um you know so to speak of of certain social issues and speak materially about what emancipation might mean and what what it might require um you know like flirting with these sorts of these forms of realism that do get i think um yeah kind of castigated for being just bad, just sort of inherently uh, dangerous territory. I mean, you know, it leads to things like the the so-called grievance studies affair, this like academic hoax by these three people who are trying to like expose um, the the I guess like the the superficial nature of 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 you know academic journals and cultural queer race racial you know justice and, and gender justice. That hoax casts this weirdly like 
I mean, people have maybe forgotten about it to some extent, but in 2017 and in 2018, you know, these three people, these kind of conservative uh, um, academics decided to publish articles um, that were, you know, trying to parody a lot of the sort of humanities form form of of queer theory in particular, it seemed to me, uh, that had become fashionable. And, you know, what's notable is that they were like successful in getting these articles published. Um, and then the idea was to sort of expose um, so-called grievance studies as something that was fundamentally, you know, like a waste of taxpayer money. Like it came it, it, in similar ways as the, as, as Chase Strangio said, like the Emily Bazelon article comes at a time where it's just, a, it's, it's a pretty awful time to give fodder to these sorts of like right-wing groups. I think that grievance studies hoax um, came at, you know, at a time where these departments were under attack, like we're struggling for resources. Um, yeah, but you know what? For a very long time, <clears throat> white men in power have said that any research that encompasses one's subjectivity is biased. Yeah. And that is its own epistemological fallacy, right? You can only imagine a, a neutral research agenda when you have no sense of your own subjectivity. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Um, and it's something that, you know, uh, I spoke with Jennifer Esposito and Venus Evans Winters about in, in relationship to their textbook, uh, Introduction to Intersectional Qualitative uh, Research. Right. Like they're they're trying to actively work against that sort of disembodied, um, you know, uh, aggressively neutral kind of approach to producing knowledge. Um, and I, I think like there is something you know, I think autoethnography is itself becoming a little bit of a fashionable method, but I, at the same time, I think there's, there's power in it. And to some extent, like you're, you're, you're kind of, you know, experimenting with autoethnography. I don't know if you would call it that, uh, in your writing, the chapter that I, I mentioned, the mess on queer vulnerability and field work is one in which you are, you know, giving an account of yourself to use Butler's phrase to some extent, like, um, you're, you're quite, vulnerable and open about your exchanges with especially Ken Zucker, uh, who, who is such a big part of the first half of trans kids. Um, you talk about how in, in that, in the chapter you were quote, a relatively normatively gendered kid and how in your exchanges with Zucker, you, you were quote, acutely aware of the contours of your body and felt a subtle shame. You know, that, that idea of being the object of the analyzing gaze is something you're very open about in that chapter more broadly. And you're even, you say like, it's a mistake to imagine that the people that you're interviewing, that you're studying don't also know uh, that there's like a certain maybe power dynamic uh, that comes with, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, being studied, you know, again, Venus Evans Winters, Jennifer Esposito talk about this, like building trust in communities where it is understood that it's, it's not necessarily a balanced relationship that there is um, an academic who seeks to, on some level, gain from uh, this exchange. Um, you know that is that is like that is there, that is present, and needs to perhaps be uh, identified. I wonder if, like, to some extent, that's what you're trying to identify in these moments where you're thinking about the analytic gaze. Um, and you know, uh, in a second, I'll ask about Ken Zucker. But did you have any any thoughts on that in particular? Well. I mean, I don't understand the texts that you're talking about to be autoethnographic. Um, so the mm -hmm. idea of autoethnography 
is that your research site, right? Your ethnographic field site is yourself. Right. And that was never the case for me. My, the subjects of my ethnography were the kids, the parents, and the clinicians. What became interesting to me was the way in which who I was mattered to them in that context. And part of what I try to say is that that is not evidence of the truth of what I am, even socially. That is the truth of how they felt I was relevant, dealing like, like in relation to the particular set of social circumstances that they were in. Right. You talk about how they perceived you as fluent. Yeah. Right. Or, 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 you know, whether or not they perceived me as trans was often really tied to some concern of their own. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it speaks to the ways in which our genders are always in a process of um, interpret being interpreted by others. And that is what I mean when I say that I think gender is relational, mm -hmm. right? That it is always a sense-making process and a, a, a way of figuring out how to relate. And so, you know, in that sense, it, it was not an auto-ethnographic account at all. Um, because I didn't tell you much about me other than what happened to me in the field, which is what ethnographers do. And I think it's a very white male version of ethnography to either leave that out, right? Sure. Uh, or to assume that, you know, like to not sort of see that as, as part of what's going on, as part of the social situation. Yeah, I mean, and and you say like there there is something about our contemporary moment too, where you know, uh, as you put it, um, you know, we can't study gender without being a subject of study. But I get what you're saying. It's like your your experience and 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 providing that account of yourself. That's by no means the central point. It is this more reflexive and relational um, thing. And so when you talk about Ken Zucker, who is like a person who I think is just like very deserving of the podcast treatment. Um, uh, being kind of preeminent for so long and then experiencing this, this, this moment where he, um, is, uh, successfully removed from CAMH. Um, you know, I, I, I wondered if you could, uh, speak to just who that figure, you know, who, who he, re who he is and, and what he represents to some extent, how he maybe is illustrative of how conflicted, the sort of still cis heteropatriarchal mainstream has historically been on the reality of gender nonconformity um, and, and, you know, the, as, and transgender people as like legitimate, uh, a legitimate subject position. Like what is it about Zucker that is still at this point in his career, he, he sort of looms large on some level, right? Uh, you, you say that in the book that you, he had your, respect, but also your skepticism. So he's even kind of polarizing personally for you, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I had a number of very uncomfortable interactions with him, which I write about in the book. Mm -hmm. Ken is a very interesting guy. I mean, so in a large sense, people react to him because he has held a tremendous amount of power um, institutionally and rhetorically. Mm -hmm. So Ken um, led the committee that revised the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 
um, when they revised gender identity disorder in the early 2000s. Um, he was, is, I think, still the editor of the Archives of Sexual Behavior, which is one of the highly, uh, highly ranked um, sexuality journal. He uh, ran the biggest clinic that that did gender related care for youth in Canada. He's um, incredibly published. He's worked with all of the major international clinics that were the earliest folks treating um, trans youth. You know, everybody knows Ken. Mm-hmm. Um, what is remarkable about his career is that on the one hand, Ken was the first clinician that I've been able to find um, prescribing hormone blockers for youth. Mm-hmm. But that having been said, he was a big proponent of the, well, if we can make this kid not trans, that's the way to go. Right. So his approach was to do lots of potentially damaging things to try to prevent transness in his patients. So I, for example, interviewed a parent um, who brought her child to his clinic and Ken encouraged this parent to, you know, take away all the kids' dolls so that they wouldn't be inclined to engage in, you know, these kinds of like feminine play behaviors. And this parent found that to be very damaging for her child and eventually stopped doing it. Um, And you know, these are not things that are acceptable anymore. But what is remarkable about Ken's career is that in the span of just 20 years, he went from being on the absolute vanguard of the treatment of trans youth to being really, but for all intents and purposes, kind of a social pariah. Mm -hmm. And so I find that a fascinating indication, not just so much about Ken, but about the rapidity with which the field has changed around these issues. Like, you know, and, and he is no longer, um, you know, when I first met him, I walked into his office um, and he, he, it it looks like one of those, I mean, it, it was clear he'd been working there for decades and he had just stuff everywhere. And one of the things that he handed me was a, a button from a box of buttons he had that said the, in capital letters, gender identity guy, (laughs) which is how he saw himself, Mm -hmm. right? He was the guy. He -hmm. was the straight white man who was the authority on all of this. And now there are trans people who are themselves doctors saying, step back now, sir. We see this differently. And it is a white male conceit to imagine that you imagine that you remain the expert forever, even as the people who form the basis of your expertise um, have the ability to advocate for themselves. And that is a very, you know, that is the psychiatric gaze right there that imagines itself to be the expert who knows the truth of other people's experiences. And and Ken got got really caught up in that. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, he's a really complicated figure. And I mean, so interesting to think about just that button itself, like theorizing that button in a way, because it's as though, you know, it's like harmless fun to sort of assign himself that 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 position to such an extent that you would have this kind of 
this button made, right? To kind of, you know, promote your own expertise. It's an interesting thing that's happened in the trans community. So um, a sociologist named Steph Schuster has been writing about this and has a new book on, on, you, you asked this question before about the consolidation of medical authority over gender. And, you know, it's, it's also interesting. There was a, a surgeon who for many years was one of the few places trans men could go for top surgery. And I remember learning that she would give her patients hats that said Bev's boys and people would wear them. And by Bev's boys, she meant people who she had done top surgery on. And so there's this sort of sense of, of branding, but also ownership. Yeah. Um, a sense of, and I think in the early days when there were really just not that many people doing this work, you know, it also wasn't a particularly um, easy path to decide, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be a trans top surgeon, right? Like that was not the most legitimate way to make your cash. Um, you know, Ken's more complicated because I think that that he he worked in very normative channels. So, you know, it's complicated. Like there was a certain sense people had of their own benevolence for working with this population to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that translated into a kind of ego uh, inflation. Um, and that's different from the, you know, in trans kids, you're writing about how, you know, facilitative uh, um, care, um, you know, that that form that, you know, is now uh, current, that is more kind of accepted and contemporary, that that is consumer focused. Like you kind of talk about how it's like, it's kind of a consumer first form of care. That's different from what you're sort of describing, which is this form of professionalization that is about almost like, you know, brand loyalty, you know, this form of like, you know, producing merch and so on. Like um, that, that is still privileging uh, the expert. Um, and it, there's something more kind of tenuous about that um, and, and, and less sort of about, um, you know, the particularity of people's experiences to just to what you were saying at the beginning of this conversation. Um, you know, I had some questions about masculinity, the way you write about masculinity in trans kids. This is something that come that you've already spoken to with, you know, with regard to like how Zucker imagines himself, you know, you talk about he seemed pretty overtly patriarchal in some of his views. There's one uh, parent who goes to him for care that talks about this, like these masculine sort of pretty, pretty um, conservative understandings of how the the gender division of labor in the home should go. You know, it, it, it is the case that the book understands masculinity as quote, uniquely fragile, which I found really interesting. Like you talk about how it takes twice as long for parents of feminine boys to recognize their gendered personhood um, I don't know if, if your thinking on that in particular has sort of like shifted or, or, or how you've maybe refined your perspective on the, on the fact that masculinity is, in your words, paradoxically both accorded high value and highly fragile. Like, how does that manifest itself in terms of gender related care, but also like politically from your perspective? Well, I, I want to restate your summary a little bit. What I found was that parents of boys who exhibited feminine characteristics actually identified that as being about gender much more quickly than girls who were masculine. Hmm. And that is not actually all that surprising. I mean, in some ways it's feminism 101, right? Like girls can exhibit certain masculine traits. If you have a daughter who likes Lego and 
wants to wear an engineer cap and wants to play basketball or wear shorts, people aren't too concerned. But if you have a boy who's wearing a dress, alarm bells go off and mm. parents become very anxious that, that, that there's something wrong with this child or start imagining it to be about sexuality or, you know, like, like, and so previously, and this was Ken's bread and butter for a long time, people would bring feminine boys into his clinic to be fixed. Right. Um, and, and, and if these kids had overtly female identities, that was even more of a serious um, concern. And so, um, whereas, you know, girls playing dad while playing house was not a big deal. Somebody had to do it. Right. Um, and so I think that that continues to be true, but, and, and that the bar for understanding a child to have a trans identity is higher for female assigned children. So largely, um, the parents of masculine female assigned children like had kids who either had to say i'm a boy i'm a boy i'm a boy i'm a boy or cut off their hair for the parents to start thinking there's something serious here whereas you know the the feminine male assigned kids in the study these parents were telling me about being pulled in to school by their preschool teachers because the kid spent too much time in the dress-up corner and being told by religious preschools that they weren't going to let the kid do that anymore. Or having neighbors say, our grandparents, I'm worried about him. Mm -hmm. He's too feminine. He's going to be gay. He's going to have a hard life. And so these parents were thinking about gender much earlier and for much more minor infractions. Now, the thing that's interesting is that some clinics are reporting greater numbers of trans boys, so female assigned children who are masculine, who identify as boys, coming in than in previous generations. And I don't really know how to interpret those numbers. Part of it, I think, is because we used to understand gender clinics to be the places you took your gay son to be fixed, right? That was mm -hmm. the point of them. Now, as they have transformed themselves into places that facilitate rather than regulate gender, although they regulate it too, I mean, that's what the substance of that New York Times article was about, was how best to regulate it. But um, they're, they're going to see a new population of people, people who believe their gender to be something that they want help with, who come in um, for that help. And that will, you know, encompass a, a broad spectrum of, of, of people. So um, I think that, you know, part of what, what leads to the fragility of masculinity is how valuable we think it is and how, what a shame it would be to lose it. Yeah. Right. It's also a form of misogyny to imagine femininity as a devalued trait. Um, yeah, no. And, um, you know, I, I, I won't take too much more of your time. Uh, you've been incredibly generous with it. You know, there's, there's a remarkable passage in trans kids where you write that parents, doctors, psychologists, teachers can move a child from one category to another the, and the entire apparatus, all the social processes previously employed to shore up a child's kind of sense of self as male, then shift to consolidate the very same person as female in one iteration. Um, and yeah, like one space where I see that experience of shifting sort of being talked about in creative ways is in comedy and in performance. Um, you know, like comedians, it seems to me are, and, and, and only a handful of them, uh, but a growing number are trying to use the stage uh, YouTube, Zoom, um, all of these spaces uh, as a means of like 
negotiating the messiness of gendered personhood. As I mentioned, I interviewed uh, Al Val uh, in her tight pants set on YouTube. She jokes that she's conflicted about um, inhabiting a feminine identity in some ways. Like she's open about this and and tries to, as she says, like give permission to audiences to kind of laugh at that struggle. Um, Mm -hmm. But so, you know, she's, she's on this trajectory where she's like gone from talking, you know, about gender as something that is like silly on some level that is, is almost arbitrarily assigned to having this deep investment um, in, in, being a woman, uh, to the, as she says, the best of her ability. River Butcher is another comedian, uh, who came out as transgender during the pandemic. He likes to take aim at conventions of gender presentation. Uh, so like in his comedy central special, a different kind of dude, he's also talking about like the absurdity of kind of hegemonic masculinity in a lot of different ways. Um, average dudeness as the LA times put it. Uh, do you yourself see any power in the, in the use of comedy, to like open up a more kind of inclusive conversation about gender. And what do you think it means that it was during the pandemic that we had this kind of emergence of, of, you know, trans positive, trans inclusive comedy at the same time that we had, you know, Dave Chappelle's horrifying, the closer special, this Ricky Gervais special, which are openly transphobic. Like these things are emerging at the exact same moment. Well, I think artistic expression is always a place for people to work things out. I think that comedy is always a place where, I mean, great comedians are people who work through their uncomfortable feelings on stage, right? Their awkwardness, their failures, their, I mean, oftentimes the butt of the comedian's joke is themselves. I mean, that's certainly more true probably for women than men, right? Um, But I think that gender is funny. Mm-hmm. Right from early stand-up comics like Rita Rudner and Lily Tomlin, that 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 their jokes were always about their subjectivity as women, right? And they're they're pointing to the absurdity of some taken for granted aspects of life. The thing that's wonderful about trans and gender non-conforming comedians is that part of what they're poking fun at is the naturalness of gender as an idea, mm-hmm. right? When it takes so much damn work to make it happen. Um, and so, you know, the thing that I point to in the book is that, you know, we all live in the fishbowl of gender, but when somebody transitions and all of a sudden you're speaking to them differently or you're buying them different clothes or different birthday cards, or you're imagining a different future for them, all of the stuff that was previously invisible becomes acutely visible and you begin to understand oh like gender takes a lot of work um and i think that that is part of the um the kind of payoff rhetorically of those performances and i think self-deprecation is often a route to um, bids for social acceptance right so many of us who were you know outcasts in one way or another learn to be self-deprecating in ways that entertained other people to deflect negative attention. Yeah, well put. And that's, I mean, that's pretty much exactly how Al Val kind of communicates the purpose of her comedy as a political tool, as a communicational, um, you know, set of, you know, inventive 
methods for trying to move audiences is you know to to overcome a lot of what she was experiencing and using as you say self-deprecation as a route to social acceptance there's something clearly empowering about occupying that messy place in a public way through artistic performance and making it clear that gender is funny um so i uh i can't tell you how much i appreciate you uh doing this it really was a treat it was a workout um but it was a treat <laughs> thanks again thanks so much for your time take care